here Vermont. Vermont, Joe Biden will win the state of Vermont. President Trump, the winner in the state of Alabama, where the polls... This is Joe Biden, the projected winner of Illinois, and it's... Florida goes to President Donald Trump. Election Day has come and gone, but there's still no official winner in this unprecedented presidential race. Voters turned out at a rate we haven't seen in over a century, according to most estimates, and a record number voted by mail. We are committed to getting this right, to get making sure it's accurate, and really trying to stay above the political fray. Counting all of those ballots takes time, though, which means calling a winner takes time, too. Most attention is on a small number of key battleground states. Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight. And President Trump is fighting to undermine the integrity of the election, even though there's no evidence of fraud. And uh, a very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people. And we won't stand for it. We will not stand for it. In this episode, we hear from our reporters in two battleground states. Pennsylvania, one of the pivotal places Donald Trump flipped in 2016. How does the country pick up the pieces from such a divisive year? And Georgia, which this year is up for grabs by Democrats for the first time since Bill Clinton won back in 1992. To come back here now and see this state become totally in play, a swing state, uh, as purple as it can be, represents some big fundamental demographic shifts in this country. Together, they offer a look at the story of this election so far. Razor-thin margins, changing demographics, the way we count votes, and political divisions that are growing deeper. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Amna Nawaz. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Hey, Amna, how are you? NewsHour's politics reporter Daniel Bush has been in Pennsylvania over the past few months talking to voters about what motivated their decision this election. And by the way, we recorded this conversation at 11 a.m. on November 6th. You have been in the state of Pennsylvania since Monday. You've been there a few times, actually, even before this election week. And we knew this would be one of the closest races this election. But just give us a breakdown. What happened in Pennsylvania this week? Well, you know, it was so interesting, Amna, because coming into this election, the question was, can President Trump hold states that he surprised everyone by winning the last time around? That included Pennsylvania. He won it in 2016. It was the first time a Republican had won the state in the last couple of decades. And he did it by significant turnout with a couple key groups. And those were the groups we were watching again this week. Voters in rural areas, voters in suburbs, white voters, white voters without college degrees. That was his main base. And the question was, could he get those same voters to come out in big enough numbers to overcome support from Joe Biden and especially Biden support with voters of color in Philadelphia and other big cities in the state and suburban voters? And in the end, Joe Biden looks like he was successful into eating into Trump's margins with suburban voters outside of Philly in those collar counties, as we call them, outside of Pittsburgh um, and other parts of the state. And I did speak with voters who said that in those suburban areas who just said that they were fed up. They, They wanted a change. They were done with President Trump. And that seems to have worked out in Biden's favor. Okay, so you mentioned voters of color, black voters in particular. And I want to ask you about that because you're in Philadelphia. 
and black voters make up a significant portion of the electorate there. When you're talking to people on the ground there, when you're talking to black voters, what are they telling you about why they turned out for Mr. Biden? Um, no, this was fascinating. Two through lines really stood out. Number one, black voters said we were not going to vote for President Trump. A few did. It's a small percentage, but more than 90 percent, according to AP's voter surveys, backed Joe Biden. They said that was not an option. On the other hand, though, they had significant problems with Joe Biden, with his record on law enforcement, with his support for the crime bill in the mid-1990s. And they said that they're skeptical that Joe Biden is going to bring about the change that they want but they feel that they just didn't have a choice. I talked to Leonard Blocker about why Biden. he voted for Biden. Um, right now, there's a lot of things happening in this country that I don't agree with. And at this point, we just gotta make a change. This is my first time getting out here voting and bringing some of my friends with me. Yeah, we just need change in this world. It's, it's been a crazy year, the pandemic, everything happening with Black Lives Matter. We need some change in this country. So Leonard lives in Philadelphia, but Dan, a lot of the things he's talking about, some of those issues, those affected voters across the state of Pennsylvania. You mentioned voters in the suburbs. We know President Trump really went after some of those voters hard in the last days of the campaign. What motivated them this election season? Trump made that big appeal, that law and order message. Amma, we heard him uh, talk about so often in the final months and weeks. And he was targeting suburban voters. And his argument was, look at these protests that are happening in cities. They are making your community unsafe. Those, those protests might spread to your neighborhoods. Critics said that it was dog whistle politics aimed at stirring up uh, fears among white people in particular. And Democrats were offended by that message, frankly, a lot of them that I spoke to and said that that it was racist or that it was unfairly you know, targeting black residents in, in cities. And they responded to that by casting ballots for Joe Biden. So we, we saw in 2016 that Trump did better than expected in the suburbs. That flipped a little bit this time around. And Joe Biden, as I said earlier, was able to make up that ground by appealing to, to voters who both didn't like Trump's messaging around race and policing and also just didn't like the president's demeanor. And I heard that a lot. And here's one voter, Michelle Hoffman, who talked to me about her motivating factors in this election. Just the language that he uses, speaking about women, speaking about LGBT people, speaking about veterans, just so many people that I know and love, people with disabilities that I know and love in my life. And even if I didn't, I just believe as a Christian to have compassion and love for them. And the fact that he claims that but doesn't act on it, um, I know we all make mistakes and all sin, but I can't, I can't reconcile the two. That is so fascinating. And Michelle actually used a key word there I want to pick up on, which is reconcile. And we talk about the two sides of this country right now, Dan. If there's one thing we saw in this election, it's that the entire country is very divided. And Pennsylvania is a perfect example of that. So where do we go from here? Amna, um, that is the single most important question, I think, um, that we can pose right now, which is how does the country pick up the pieces from such a divisive year, a pandemic, protests, a bitter, closely fought presidential election? The answer is we don't really know. Um, but if you just take Pennsylvania, you can see the very stark divides that are playing out across the country. You look at that map and the Democrat, Joe Biden, carried cities and suburbs, and that's basically it. The Republican, Donald Trump, carried rural areas and some suburban areas. That's basically it. So within this one state, there are people who are living in alternate realities. You know, there are there are rural conservative voters who overwhelmingly back Trump, 
who think Joe Biden is a socialist um, and don't want anything to do with him. And then there are progressive liberals in cities who abhor President Trump. And they're just not seeing eye to eye on and you know, just a bit of color on that that stood out to me. There have been dueling mini protests outside of the convention center here in Philadelphia where officials are counting ballots in the city of Philadelphia. And he, these protesters on opposite sides of an avenue, you have the Trump folks waving flags on one side. You have the Biden folks waving their flags on the other side. And they're separated by you know, a two lane road, but it might as well be an enormous political gulf. And, and to your question how they can reconcile, I don't know that they can. I don't see how that's possible, at least in the short term, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. We know those divides don't go away just because an election ends, though, right? That's, that's so true. All right. Daniel Bush reporting for us from Pennsylvania. Good to talk to you, Dan. Always, Amna. Thank you. 700 miles south of Philadelphia, we caught up with NewsHour correspondent Miles O'Brien in Atlanta. He's been reporting over the past five months on the changing election infrastructure in Georgia, as well as the shifting demographics there. We recorded this conversation midday on November 6th. Miles, day four, you're still standing. How many cups of coffee a day, my friend? Hard to keep track. And do you count a, do you count a red eye as one or two or four? It depends, you know? Wow. Right? That, yeah, that, I don't know. We're going to have to put that <laughs> one to the listeners. Yeah. I'm curious what they think. But yeah. there's something huge that happened in Georgia. The fact that the race has been as tight as it is, what does that say to you? It's uh, a fundamental shift, which I think is, you know, a microcosm of the country, this urban and uh, rural divide that we've been seeing, which has been greatly exacerbated during the Trump years. Uh, you know, a wedge really has been placed between these two sectors of American society. I, I moved to Atlanta in 1992. I lived here uh, for 13 years. Not long after I moved here, uh, uh, Georgia voted for Bill Clinton. That is the last time that uh, Georgia voted for a uh, Democratic presidential candidate. And I was here as the state steadily moved uh, toward the red side of the uh, spectrum. And, um, you know, the, the first um, Republican governor, I believe, since Reconstruction was Sonny Perdue. And so it, it shifted while I was here, and that's the Atlanta that I left in 2005, the Georgia that I left. To come back here now and see this state become totally in play, a swing state, uh, as purple as it can be, you know, represents some big fundamental demographic shifts in this country. It's not rocket science. They're, the cities uh, are growing. The cities are uh, have a greater amount of diversity, and the cities lean blue. And uh, those blue uh, urban centers, and if you look at the, the Georgia map right now, based on how the counties have reported back, uh, those blue pockets are built around the cities. And that is um, really the inflection point we're at in this country, uh, marching forward, because that's where uh, the demographic growth is. That's where the the, the support uh, will be here and uh, if the trends continue into the future. So uh, I ran into some voters, uh, by the way, who um, represent some of that urban diversity. And I think as much as anything, you know, voters here, and this goes all across the map, 
uh, are just relieved it's over. I spoke with Jorge and Jerry Dorta. It was it was easy. We were in and out in like eight minutes. Easy parking. Everything everything was was good down there. Right. So and we know we did the right thing. Yeah. All right. How does it feel to get this uh, to reach this moment after all this time? <laughs> we just want it to be over so bad. At this point, it's like no matter who wins or who loses, we just want this to be over and everybody unite together and just come up with a common thread that we can cling to. But yeah, it's been chaos. Chaos indeed. And here we are um, on the back end of that, uh, maybe expecting a little more chaos, Amna. I don't know. I, I don't know. And I don't want to start predicting what happens next. But I, you, you've been traveling back and forth from Georgia for months now, right? Since the June primary. What brought you to Georgia in the first place? Yeah, it's been a, a five-month epic journey. And what brought me to Georgia in the first place, you know, as you you and many of the listeners probably know, I am the science correspondent for the NewsHour. And I became very interested in the science and technology that surrounds how we capture and tally votes. Uh, Georgia, in the midst of a pandemic, under a court order, shifted to a new kind of voting system, uh, which uh, replaced an old system made by a company called Diebold. Uh, those machines which uh, came out of the infamous 2000 Bush v. Gore election, remember dangling chads and the like, those machines... Who could forget those, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Those machines were viewed initially as a solution to that problem. It turns out that the Diebold machines had their own set of problems, specifically no paper trail. And uh, ultimately, that makes them, it's impossible to audit them. And so a judge put Georgia under court order to get rid of those machines. The timing couldn't have been worse. The machines rolled out as the pandemic uh, took off. And so in June, I saw a technological meltdown brewing here as they went toward a primary with a brand new complex set of systems and machines uh, that do, in fact, produce a paper ballot. It's a so-called ballot marking device. But it was very difficult to train people. Uh, many precincts were closing because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, many poll workers uh, didn't want to come to work for obvious reasons. And so I came here just to see what this technology is all about. Was it an answer to the problem of the paperless systems? And how on earth were they going to pull this off in the middle of the pandemic? And the upshot of it was, you'll recall, quite a meltdown. And so uh, that led me on another journey to just further understand uh, how elections officials were managing in the midst of a pandemic. What systems were they using? Where were they still using those old paperless systems? Where do they just go with hand-marked paper ballots? And how was that all working? And that led us up to being here in the midst of uh, the election just this past week. And you talked to an election director in Fulton County, is that right? He, he was telling you about what they were doing to get ready? The director of elections in Fulton County is uh, Richard Barron, and he was put in a difficult position. The way Georgia works is uh, the state chooses all the devices for every of the 159 counties, and then it's up to the counties to make them all work. The counties have no say-so on the purchase. And uh, when I met Rick Barron initially in June, uh, it was clear these were machines he would not have chosen, but he had to implement their use and uh, was in the middle of this meltdown in June 
when I saw him uh, on return, uh, he told me that they had taken that whole experience to heart and had learned a lot of lessons. We've actually added 91 new locations since, since June. Um, we're going to have 255 polling locations. So there are a lot of um, silver linings. So we've been out trying to proactively look for help through consultants that, that can help us for November because we don't want to have issues in November. We want to just fly under the radar and do, do our jobs and, you know, stay away from the news. So I think we can agree, Amna, he's not away from the news right now, but <laughs> he's, he's in the news for reasons he'd rather be. Uh, it's all about a close count. And uh, there's less discussion this time around about the technology and more just about where the tally stands. And I think that's probably where most elections officials like it. Miles, you mentioned some of the tech updates that Georgia worked so hard to get into place. There are also, across every state, different rules, right? Different laws governing how they count and how the process unfolds. And a number of states moved to change those, especially in the middle of the pandemic, but not all did, right? Yeah, it, the way we vote in this country is, you know, I, the, the, the term hodgepodge comes to mind, and it is a hodgepodge. It's decided by the states and often by the counties and the localities. And so it's, a, it's quite a mix of ways of voting uh, with very few federal standards or guidance on what's a good idea and what's not. And so um, wherever you go, it's slightly different. But there, the, the silver lining that uh, I see in all of this is that the experience with those paperless machines that were in vogue for from about 2000 to right up until this election, those um, those machines have largely been uh, scrapped. There are a few places that still use them. But fortunately, uh, the states that are in play right now, uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, in each case, there is a strong paper trail. And when I say that, that means there's paper for people who vote in person at the polls. And of course, all of the mail-in voting, absentee or otherwise, whatever you want to call it, mail-in voting, that all is hand-marked paper ballots. And so what that gives election officials and the political establishment and all of us is uh, the surety of knowing that we can physically trace back what happened. What was the voters' intent? How can we recount that? How can we audit it to make sure that these close, razor-thin margins uh, are accurate? And if we weren't in that situation, uh, if we were back with those old uh, machines that didn't produce that paper ballot, we would have no way of checking things. And we would have to rely essentially on the black box that is a computer and assume that those um, numbers were correct. And that would not be a good place to be in. So the timing was just perfect. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a disaster in June here in Georgia. The fact that they have these machines with paper that can be recounted, examined, scanned uh, is, is a godsend. And, you know, in the midst of all this, I, I had the opportunity in traveling around. We were in New Hampshire. We were in Colorado. We were in Florida. We were in Georgia. And we spoke to several of these professionals who are involved in um, doing the, the hard work, the difficult 
detail-oriented, laborious work of counting ballots in an accurate, um, methodical way. And uh, I, I've, I've got to say, to hear them being criticized for, uh, at, the, at the presidential level is just, it's just patently unfair. They are nonpartisan individuals who are really um, professionals and doing their job for all the right reasons with all the right intent. And uh, we went down to Marion County, Florida. Wesley Wilcox is uh, the uh, director of elections there. And um, it's the first time he's actually gotten, you know, hate mail and, and phone calls calling him names. Let's listen to what he has to say. I get emails from, from constituents, people I've never met in my life that don't know me, probably couldn't name me if they had to, but they found my email address on my website, and within the first two sentences of the email, they've either called me stupid or an idiot. And I'm like, really, what happened to just, just some common decency or respect? And so usually, you know, I, I'm a, a kill them with kindness guy, and if worst case, you know, we'll, I'll just ignore them. So uh, it, it just reminds me, Amna, that words, tweets, statements have real consequences for real human beings. And uh, I, I think we should all think about what Wesley has to say. This is a much larger subject, you know, a subject for a much bigger podcast. Uh, but the point is there are flesh and blood people working diligently to deliver elections that we can all be proud of in our democracy. And it's, it's patently unfair to attack them without a shred of evidence. Kill them with kindness. I can't think of a better note to end on. Indeed. Miles O'Brien joining us from Georgia. Miles, always good to talk to you. It was a pleasure, Anna. As we record this podcast, we still don't have a definitive answer for who the next president of the United States will be. And there's deep uncertainty as to where we as a country go from here. Well, one thing we know for certain, and it's helpful to keep this in mind, is that despite a global pandemic, more Americans voted than in any modern election. And that right is a fundamental part of our democracy. Regardless of the challenges we face, these are the democratic principles that have sustained our country for generations. This episode was produced by Rachel Welford, Jaywan Cho, Leah Nagy, Frank Carlson, and Vika Aronson, and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Fact-checking by Maya Lene Pura. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.